Well, I've had the privilege of doing a lot of weddings over the years, and I often tell couples to expect something to go wrong during the wedding ceremony. Uh, Many times what's gone wrong are things that I've contributed. (laughs) So I think back to when we lived in central Illinois, and I was doing a wedding at the most sacred moment of the ceremony. I asked the couple, their names were Ben and Jen, to repeat their vows. When I turned to the bride, I accidentally called her Benifer. <laughs> now that goes back to when Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez were referred to by that name. Everyone started laughing, the whole room, and it was filled with people. I wasn't laughing. I turned bright red. I remember looking down at my notes, and I couldn't even see my notes. I was discombobulated. I didn't know what to do next. I knew I had made a mistake, but I didn't know how to get out of it. This is the first time it's ever happened where the bride turned to me, put her hand on my arm, and said, It's okay, Pastor. It's okay. (laughs) Second experience I had... (laughs) This is, uh, this is in the category of weddings you shouldn't attempt. So this particular couple thought it would be a good idea to get married at a lake. And the bride and her bridesmaids wanted to come across the lake in a pontoon boat where the groom and his groomsmen and I was standing next to him on the pier. It all sounds good, except it was raining that day, and it was quite windy. If you've been around pontoon boats, they don't have a lot of speed. And so this boat's making its way across the lake. It's windy. There's white caps on the lake. And I look, and I see the bride. She's holding her veil down like this. Her hair's flying around, and she's got a scowl on her face. And I started laughing which I'm not recommending at that moment, but you do this right. When you get the church giggles, you don't know how to stop. Well, that was me. So I'm watching the boat make its way over. The boat gets close to the pier, and it's kind of going like this because of the weather. She steps out and falls in the lake. And instead of being the compassionate pastor, I lost it. I just started laughing, and I'll never forget the bride glaring at me through the entire ceremony. I sped that wedding up quickly. Well, as a pastor, it's been my joy for over 25 years to watch fretting fathers escort their eager daughters down the aisle. I've been the nervous father of the bride four times. Incidentally, I used to laugh when I watched the movie, The Father of the Bride. I don't find it very funny anymore. (laughs) Well, I'll never forget, our first daughter who was going to get married was Lydia. And I told our daughters all through their growing up years, hey, if you want me to have a part in your wedding, I'm happy to do that. Just no outdoor weddings. (laughs) If you want me to be dad and sit by your mom, I'm happy to do that. Whatever you want, no pressure. Well, the first daughter to get married wanted me involved in the wedding itself. And I said, okay, I'm honored to do so, but I was nervous. Here's why. I cry very easily. 
And I knew I was going to cry walking her down this aisle right here. We had just moved here. And so we, a week or so before the wedding, I got together with Pastor Tim. And if you remember Pastor Tim, of course, many of you do, that guy gave a lot of good advice, a lot of great counsel. So I went up to Pastor Tim and I said, Pastor Tim, I need some help. He said, I know you do. No, I said, no, let, let me tell you what I need. And so I told him, I said, Lydia's getting married. I'm going to walk her down the aisle. I don't want to be that dad who then comes up here and does the official part and be crying. It's, I don't want it to be that. It's all about God, and we want to celebrate Jamie and Lydia. And Pastor Tim, in his wisdom, got this look on his face, and he said, okay, here's what you need to do. Get up, and I knew I could ask him because he's got four kids, and I knew he was involved in officiating some of their weddings. And so he said, get up really early on the Saturday of the wedding, come to church all by yourself, and walk down the aisle as if you're walking your daughter down the aisle and get all your tears out. Just cry. I looked at him and I said, Tim, that sounds like great advice. Is that what you did? He said, yeah. And I said, did it work? He said, no. (laughs) So I did it and it didn't work. (laughs) A couple years ago, I sat down and wrote out a summary of biblical marriage when I was watching what's happening in our culture. Now, because of other responsibilities, I don't do weddings right now, but this is what I've stated at the beginning of weddings that I have officiated. Thank you for gathering for worship. As we witness this man and woman make a covenant commitment in marriage before our triune God. We live in a culture that dismisses marriage as an irrelevant relic of tradition. The spirit of our times has vigorously sought to dilute the sanctity of marriage through its condescending disregard, disrespect, and redefinition. But the truth is, marriage has never found its worth or definition from any society or culture because marriage is the exclusive design of God's personal genius. It has withstood the test of time and will continue to endure as a living memorial of God's gracious provision for his creatures, remaining an institution created in his perfect wisdom and established by his infinite power. And then I quoted this, marriage is rooted in creation, reiterated throughout scripture, repeated by Jesus himself. It's represented of the love Jesus has for his church, and it's reflective of the gospel. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. In Genesis chapter 2, God himself presented the first woman to the first man and presided at the first wedding. As the second Adam, Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding in John chapter 2. And in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, it points to a future wedding filled with worship. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Well, here's a one sentence summary of where we're headed today. Marriage is made in heaven, but it matures on earth. 
Recently, in his Breakpoint commentary, if you're looking for a podcast to listen to, I recommend Breakpoint. During the week, it's only five minutes long. On Saturday, it actually comes out Friday, it's a little longer. Highly recommend it. This is what John Stone Street shared. He said, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Well, let me start with the good news. The good news is divorce is at its lowest rate in 50 years. The bad news is marriage is at its lowest point in 150 years. According to a Pew study, barely half of U.S. adults are married and nearly, get this stat, nearly four in ten 40% believe marriage has become obsolete as an institution. By the way, I don't know what you're thinking or gauging online or if you're here, but maybe you're thinking, man, I don't want to be here today. I don't want to hear a sermon about marriage. I'm not married. Or maybe you've been married and didn't work out so well. Maybe you're sitting here going, marriage, oh, I was married and my husband or wife died. And so this brings up all sorts of things. Or maybe you're single and you want to be married and and you're not. Or maybe you're in high school or junior high and you're like, marriage, I'm I'm not into that stuff. That's for older. So let me just say this. If you're single, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong or that somehow you're less than. And would you forgive us as a church when we put pressure on you to get married or make disparaging comments or tease you or just leave you out of things? Forgive us as a church for the times we've made you feel second class or unimportant. That's wrong. You are made in the image of God and you have value and dignity. And we must stop. Team, we must do a better job helping singles live out their singleness with single-minded devotion to the glory of God. So our main idea last week was this, how a man on mission is all about ministry. And then we made this statement, a man of valor values all life. And we called on men to man up on the issue of life, the issue of the preborn. We learned how God called Adam to live on mission for his glory in five different ways. First, he gave Adam a place. He put him in a garden. He gave him a purpose. He said, I want you to work it. I want you to keep it. And then he gave Adam permission. He said, Adam, it's all yours. Enjoy the fruit of all these trees. And then he gave him one prohibition, except this one tree. And then God promised punishment should Adam disobey. We're going to see today how God also gave Adam a partner. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand and let's give our attention to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and I'd like for us to read this together so we say God's word, we hear others speaking it around us, it comes into our ears, we see it in our copy of the scriptures or up on the screen, and it reminds us that this is a sacred moment that 
we have the ability by his grace to hear God's heart. And this is God's heart on marriage. So let's read together beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You can be seated. Now, the teaching of Scripture is clear on human origins, and it's clear on marriage as foundational to the rest of the Bible. Let me draw our attention to the words of Jesus recorded in Mark chapter 10. And as I read, would you notice Jesus believed in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. Words of Jesus But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Genesis 1. Here's Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. That's our passage for next week. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is made in heaven, but it matures on earth. And as we take a look at this passage, uh, first we're going to see that there's a problem in paradise. And secondly, we're going to discover God's provision of partnership. God created Adam, he breathed life into him, he put him in a garden with a job to do to work it and keep it, that's verse 15, but would you notice verse 18, God says, there's a problem in paradise. Verse 18, Lord God said, it is not good, what's not good, that the man should be alone I'll make a helper fit for him. This is a remarkably abrupt statement by God. In the Hebrew construction, that phrase, not good, is placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. This is fascinating because six times in Genesis 1, after each major creation event, God looked at what he had created and he said, it is good. If you look at the very last verse of Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So in this expanded account of the sixth day of creation, we're zooming in. God suddenly says something is not good, which has the sense of incompleteness. This is not saying creation was not good, but that the condition of Adam's aloneness was not good. 
Oh, would you observe? This is God's conclusion, not Adam's. Adam never complained about being alone, but God saw his need and God created the solution. So let me say this. Marriage is what God says it is. Not what society, not what social media, not what tech companies, not what corporations, not what culture, not what theologically liberal churches or the courts may say. As we've said from the beginning of this series, Genesis chapter one, we said it like this. When God says it, that settles it. The word helper here, it's not a demeaning term. It refers to a helper answering to him, a compliment, a completer, a corresponding partner. A helper is one who supplies what is lacking in another person, one who is like but opposite him. In Psalm 46, verse 1, this same word is used of God himself. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present. Here's the word, same word, and ever-present help in trouble. Observe, this helper is a perfect fit for him, which literally means like what is in front of him. Eve will be Adam's corresponding counterpart and perfect partner. She's like the missing piece of a jigsaw puzzle that's now been found and the puzzle's now completed. God made Eve to be a perfect fit emotionally, socially, spiritually, and physically. God proactively provided a partner to solve Adam's isolation as one who would work beside him on the tasks entrusted to him. Now, having said that, you might expect the next verse to say something like this. So, God created Eve. Well, that's not what we see. See, instead of immediately matching Adam to a marriage mate, God assigns Adam this huge zoology project. God sees the need for Adam to have a helper, but he delays meeting that need until Adam sees his need. Have you noticed how God often makes us wait? so that we appreciate what it is he wants to give us. And some of you have been waiting a long time. the, The wait is like so hard. But in the midst of that waiting, hold on to this truth. While we wait, God is doing his work in us, and he's doing something wonderful. In verses 19 and 20, Adam's told to give names to all the animals God has created It's interesting how God named everything on the first three days. But notice he held off on naming the animals. Why? He wanted Adam to do it. Oh, would you note there's no mention or no place for evolution here. Adam never doubted God as the intelligent designer and the benevolent creator. Now out of the ground, the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim formed every beast. The word form means to design, to shape, to fashion. That word brought each one to Adam means that God did it. He brought the animals to Adam so Adam could name them. Now, inviting Adam to this parade of animals was God's way of putting Adam through some premarital (laughs) preparation. (laughs) 
And some of you are there. You're engaged and or you're thinking about being engaged and you're like, how do I do this? Well, God wanted Adam to learn two main things. First of all, he needed some training in leadership. God called Adam to be a leader since the ability to name is the action of leadership. Let me take us back to verse 28. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. By naming the animals, it gave Adam a sense of order, and he put them into different categories, leadership training. But notice, secondly, he needed some training in loving. Another purpose of this parade was training Adam to be a lover. Adam surveyed all the animals, and after he got done naming them, he saw Mr. and Mrs. Aardvark, (laughs) and at the end of the day, when he finally named Mr. and Mrs. Zebra, he no doubt felt alone, empty, isolated. You see, for every animal, there was both male and female. Everyone had a partner. Where was his? You see, God was creating with Adam this gnawing hunger for a life mate, a need God would soon meet in the creation of Eve. Here's what I wrote down. Adam needed to feel the need in his life for a wife, but he first needed to become a loving leader. Men, fellow husbands, this is what women want. They want a man who will be a loving leader. Look at the end of verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam is forlorn as he discovers for himself in verse 20, what God had already said in verse 18, Adam lived in paradise. He had everything his heart could want, right? He had a bunch of pet animals, a great career, outstanding food, and a sinless relationship with God but he felt alone in a crowded garden. And he wondered if the day would ever end. By the way, do you know why this first day was so long? Because it had no Eve. I'm not going to repeat that, but Marty Mills is laughing at least. Marriage is made in heaven, but it matures on earth. Notice, secondly, God provided a partner. Verses 21 to 23, so in light of that, there's no helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Oh, again, we see that God took the initiative, this time giving Adam some divine anesthesia so he can surgically remove a rib. The word for made is to build or construct. So as a sculptor, God carefully shaped Eve into someone who perfectly matched the man. Adam was formed while Eve was made. Eve was literally made for Adam, a perfect match made in heaven. 
I benefited greatly and continue from a commentator named Matthew Henry. And usually he's just sticking to the text, helping pastors, helping students of scripture understand. And then I came across something Matthew Henry said. Speaking of Eve, she was not taken from Adam's head that she should rule over him, nor from his feet that she should be trampled on by him. But she was taken from his side that she might be his equal from under his arm, that she might be protected by him near his heart that he might cherish and love her. Adam or Eve was fashioned from Adam, not to be identical, but to be complementary. They were similar, but not the same. She was made from his rib to show him she was a part of him, not some lower creation. We could say it like this. Man was only half of God's plan for human life. And the woman, well, the woman was the glory and the crown of his creation. The narr- I thought a woman would say amen to that one. <laughs> oh, you're even raising your hand. You admit it. That's good. Well, the narrative makes clear that Adam and Eve are stronger together than they ever could be apart. One time in Sunday school, the teacher was teaching how God created everything, which is what our Sunday school and uh, children's worship teaches our kids, that there's only one God and he made everything. Well, in this particular church, little Johnny was very intent to learn how Eve was created out of one of Adam's ribs. So later that day, his mother noticed her son lying down. He was all curled up on the floor moaning. And so his mom went over to him and said, what's wrong, Johnny? To which the boy responded, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wife. (laughs) (laughs) you laughed more than the other two services. So (laughs) verse 22 tells us God brought her to the man. God created her and then brought her to him. As the ultimate matchmaker. God presents Eve to Adam. That's the same word used in verse 19 to show how God brought the animals to Adam. I wonder if God said something like this. Hey, Adam, look over here. (laughs) There's one of my creation you missed. You forgot to name this one. Well, in this outdoor wedding ceremony, as the father of the bride, God walked Eve down the aisle and gave her away to Adam. And from this narrative, we learn God planned the human heart for love and companionship. The only thing man brought with him out of the garden was marriage. God created a partner for Adam from his own flesh to meet the needs of his hungry heart. Hey, don't miss that Adam never put in a work order for how his wife should look or what she would be like. He just slept leaving all of that to God. The original Hebrew helps us see he was pretty pumped up when he woke up. In English, it's kind of toned down. We read this at last. 
but actually it means something like this. Here now, this is it. <laughs> At last, all right, this one. Kyle and Delitz, two German reserved scholars, believe Adam's expression was one of joyous astonishment. I think he really said something like this. Wow. Oh, baby. <laughs> Where have you been all my life? Do you come here often? To which Eve probably said, no, this is my first time here. <laughs> now he knows he's not alone. You see, isolation has given way to relationship, partnership, and completion. That phrase, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's a poetic expression of ecstatic delight because Adam has found one who perfectly corresponds to him. That word bone means of the same substance. Flesh refers to his body. She was like him, and yet she was different because she was taken out of man. This is the world's first love song. It's the first utterance from a human being before sin entered the world. And instead of complaining about his wife, he complimented her lavishly. Guys, I don't uh, want to say this because this puts more pressure on us guys, but I, I just got to be true to what I'm reading here in the text. It looks like we need to learn from Adam and recite some poetry, <laughs> just like he did. Yeah, you guys are just staring at me like, that ain't going to happen, right? <laughs> During our growth group Wednesday night, Laura Anderson recounted an interaction between her parents who've been married for 64 years years. Believe it or not, her dad's name is Ken. Her mom's name is Barbie. <laughs> her mom recently, here's the backstory. Her mom recently broke her hip. Her dad suffered a stroke. He's now on hospice. This is a hard time for Laura. And they're in separate nursing facilities because of her mom's surgery. And Laura was in the room when her mom came in the room to see her dad. They've not seen each other for five or six weeks. She came rolling into his room in a wheelchair and Ken waxed poetic. This is what he said. My Barbie, my Barbie, Barbara Skelton, will you marry me? <laughs> One lifetime is not long enough to be married to you. I told Beth that I'm going to start saying that to her, and she said, I need to come up with something original. So, <laughs> guys, don't try that one. Now, it's difficult for us to see, but there's really a Hebrew pun here. The name Adam, Adam, refers to mankind, but Adam is not called a man until there's a female counterpart. In the Hebrew, Adam, Adam changes to Ish, I-S-H, when the woman is brought to him, and she is called Ish-Shah, which means to be tender because she was taken out of Ish. 
Adam is saying something like this. This is my counterpart, my companion. She will help me make the world into a garden. We could say that Isha has her origins in Ish. Man and woman find themselves in the reflection of the other. Now, why wasn't Eve made from dust? I think it was to show Adam she was part of him, equal to him, not a lower creation. Both are made in the image of God. Husbands and wives are the same and yet different. We can be united even while we're not uniformly the same. Marriage is made in heaven, but it matures on earth. As we wrap up, I'm going to give a summary of six things the Bible says marriage is all about. Six purposes for marriage. And if you're married, ponder these. and Make note of an area or two that you need to grow in. Number one. Procreation. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Malachi 2.15, last book of the Old Testament. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was God looking for? Why did he bring them together? Very clearly, godly offspring. Number two, Pleasure, Genesis 2.24, and they shall become one flesh. Listen to what a husband says about his wife in Song of Solomon. Guys, listen, if you're looking for poetry, here's some inspired poetry. You can use this one. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. When his wife writes about her husband, She breaks out into poetry. Song of Solomon 2.16, my beloved is mine and I am his. Number three, partnership. Genesis 2.18, I'll make a helper fit for him. Malachi 2.14, she is your companion and your wife by, this word isn't used enough for marriage, your wife by covenant. Fourth purpose, purity. Gary Thomas writes, what if God designed marriage to make us holy rather than to make us happy? 1 Corinthians 7, 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Fifth purpose is a picture of Christ's love. God intends for the marriage relationship to reflect the love Christ has for the church. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't have time to develop this, so let me just say it and we can ponder it. Just as Eve came from Adam's side, so too the bride of Christ comes from the wound made in the side of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And number six, proclamation of God's glory. Since marriage is from God, it is for God and for his glory. Marriage is designed by God to display his glory in a way that no other event or institution does. Malachi 2.15, he made them one with a portion of the spirit in their union. I often tell couples they should only get married if they can serve the Lord more fully married than if they were to remain single. Marriage is meant to be a platform to live out God's purposes for his glory. 